Today's sermon comes from Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. In Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to save yourselves. We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals are not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the shaft will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I dwell with. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther famously posted his 95 theses on the door of All Saints Church. Luther was uh, a professor of moral theology at the University of Wittenberg. In his theses, the main concern in what he was actually proposing the debate over was the practice of indulgences. And the indulgences at the time or this. It was the idea that you could do good works or you could pay money to pay for the removal of sin and forgiveness of sin. And so Luther's biggest concern was that people were being encouraged to pay for forgiveness rather than repent. And of course, what he did spawned the, the Protestant Reformation and a reawakening to the gospel of grace and to the gospel of forgiveness. Of forgiveness. Luther argued this. He said, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentant. Now, this is a hard pill to swallow today, just as hard today as it was back then. And here's why. You and I are addicted to justifying ourselves and pointing out the evil in others. You and I don't have to work hard to do that. That flows naturally. To defend yourself, justify yourself, and point out how the other person is the one who is sinning. At the heart of this Matthew chapter 3 is repentance. The first word that comes out of John the Baptist's mouth in this chapter is repent. Why? Why is repentance so central to life? 
We're going to answer this question by looking at the definition of repentance, the evidence of it, and then what the goal of repentance is. So first, the definition of repentance. Verses 2 and 3 explain what it is. I want to offer this, that repentance at the core is a realignment of the heart and of a life in two critical areas. Now before I get to those two critical areas, we talk about realignment for a second. When you put a new set of tires on your car, one of the things you do is you get the wheels on And then maybe throughout the life of the tires, periodically, you will get a wheel alignment. Sometimes, if you're traveling 60 miles an hour and you hit a big pothole, you'll decide, I probably should take this in and get the wheels alive. Why? Because if your wheels are out of alignment, meaning they're tilted a little outward or inward or they're, they're tilted sideways one way or the other, your tires are going to wear unevenly, they're going to fall, they'll fall, and they're going to fail prematurely. Repentance is aligning your heart. Because if your heart is out of alignment, you're going to experience breakdown. And we're going to get to that a little bit later. But what I want you to hear is that repentance is realignment of your heart in two critical areas. Now, what are those two critical areas? Look at verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This word repent is a strong imperative. In fact, it's the first word that's spoken by Jesus in Matthew 4, 17. And in Mark 6, when Jesus sends his disciples out, they call people to repentance. It is absolutely essential. Now, the word itself, in Greek, means change of mind. It's the word metanoia, change, metanoia, mind. But we can think that it just is intellectually a change of mind. If you just look at the pure kind of Greek definition of it. But in the New Testament, the word repent carries several things from two important Hebrew words in the Old Testament. One of those Hebrew words in the Old Testament means to be sorrowful, genuinely sorrowful for one's actions. The other word in the Old Testament means to turn around to new actions. So what that means is that repentance is not merely an intellectual change of mind. Nobody follow that. It's not just sorrow or grief. Nobody follow that. So repentance is a radical transformation of the heart and of life. You say, what is that radical transformation? Well, the end of verse 2 answers. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven here doesn't mean realm. It means rule. So that the rule of heaven is at hand in the person of Jesus Christ. Repentance is realignment of your heart with the right authority. Now, some people would say, I'm anti-authority. I have no authority. I answer no authority. And my word is the final word. Well, then you do have authority. It's called self. It's called self. Right? Everyone is under authority. 
And when your ultimate authority is someone other than Jesus, you will, to varying degrees, over varying periods of time, experience breakdown. Now, that's very obvious in the case of abusive or harsh authority. Those of you who have been underneath abusive authority, they experienced abuse, whether it be physical or sexual or emotional or spiritual. You know the kind of breakdown that authority can bring to your life. There can be physical breakdown. Your body can be physically affected by that kind of harsh authority. Or there can be mental breakdown from that kind of authority. Or sometimes there's spiritual breakdown. And it's sad to say, but there are so many people that are no longer in a church because of authority that has been harsh. And some people who have left faith. That's the obvious example of how authority other than Jesus can lead to breakdown. But there's a less obvious example, which is those of you that maybe have experienced what life is like underneath good, servant, humble, gracious authority. In that case, you can love that authority so much that you can almost treat that authority like their God. And when you do that, you are set up for disappointment. Because that person, as good as they have been, and as kind and as loving, and as they have modeled out certain authority, they're human. Right? Which means they're going to fail at some point. And that can be devastating. And so when your ultimate authority is someone other than Jesus, it leads to greatness. Repentance is realigning your heart with the right authority, which is Jesus. He is your ultimate master, and he will never let you down. He never has, he never will. And he is kind. And he's gentle, not harsh. And he's merciful, he's gracious, he's honest. But he'll never let you down. He's life. And when he is your ultimate master and your ultimate authority, he keeps you from blaming God. Because you and I, we won't admit it, but we love to play God. And our lives oftentimes functionally reveal that we are playing God, trying to control or, or whatever it may be. And oftentimes our life ends up in this anxious, tied up, tight ball of strength. Because we're not meant to be God. We are meant to submit to God, God in flesh, Jesus Christ. He's a wonderful master. So repentance is realigning your heart with the right authority, which brings about a second area of realignment. And that is realignment with the right design. Look at verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And it pictures God returning to his people to then lead them back to their homeland after many years in captivity and exile. God's people had been taken into exile to a place called Babylon. And it was there in Babylon they realized this culture in this place is very different than what we know of God from His Word. So a different set of values, that led to very different practices and very different behaviors. They knew it, they felt it, that they were home. 
being in this foreign place left them feeling a degree of discomfort. Prepare the way meant to fill in the potholes and level out the road and make it smooth for when a king was approaching. Just in a, in a, in a historical sense, that's what they would do. If there was a sovereign king that was approaching a town, they would make sure that that road coming into town was smoothed out, no potholes for the king to come. And that's what is being communicated. Prepare the way for God the King, for Jesus Christ to come and bring you home. Now, you and I live in a very broken world. Every one of us is keenly aware that this world is not right. We see it on social media, we see it on the news, we personally experience it. This world is broken. But what we're also keenly aware of, though sometimes we don't want to admit, is that we are broken. That we are not right. That we have sin. And what we do. We all do this when something's broken. We try to fix it. And that is true that when we are aware of our own sin, the world's not right, we're not right, we try to fix it. If I could define brokenness for what it has done to the world and done to us, and it makes us a very insecure people. Again, something we don't want to admit, but we are deeply insecure. We peel back the layers, we're deeply insecure, and we try to fix that insecurity, oftentimes, by launching into identity construction projects. We're going to create an identity to fix this insecurity. So we may work way too many hours in the office to construct an identity around success. Or we may spend way too much money to construct an identity around beauty. Or we may undergo surgery to construct an identity around a new gender. Or we may gossip and slander about other people to construct an identity around being better than others. These are all construction projects, they're identity construction projects. Repentance, because those projects that we embark on were pursued, were fighting against God's design. Whether it be overwork or vanity or gender stuff. Or, or feeling privately better than others, it, we fight against God's design. Repentance is realigning our hearts with God's design, which means throwing away those construction projects. You, all, you know what it's like if on your way to work every day, you've got a road that's under construction, and it takes you twice as long to get there. And it takes years to finish this construction project. I remember when 295 and Butler right there was a mess for years. And that's in between our house and this building. It was a mess. And then finally it got done. And it's smooth and it's quick. Repenting is preparing the way, meaning throwing away those identity construction projects that we engage in because we feel so much insecurity. And giving ready access for Jesus. Ready access for Him into our hearts. So that He can realign us with His heart, which then realigns us towards His design. Which never leads to breakdown. It always leads to joy and to rest and to peace. This is why repentance is so simple to life. 
when you're living an unrepentant life, it will be filled with anxiety. It will be filled with trouble. It will be filled with insecurity. Genuine repentance leads to rest. You breathe a sigh of relief. There's peace. But that raises a question. How do you know if you're repentant? Well, let me ask the difference. Is it possible to think that you're living a repentant life? But you're really not. In other words, what is the evidence of repentance? Now let's let the, the text answer. Look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. That's a, that's a really kind hello. John the Baptist doesn't his words. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, Pharisees and Sadducees were very different people. The Pharisees were separatists. Meaning, they separated themselves Certainly from sinners. But these, they even separated themselves from indifferent and complacent Jews. Their goal is to stay pure and stay away from us. Their goal is to stay pure outwardly and stay away from anyone who wasn't staying pure outwardly. And the Pharisees actually believed the resurrection. Now, the Sadducees, on the other hand, were completely different. The Sadducees were compromisers. They would give uh, assent to the Word of God, but then they wouldn't show any hostility or have any problem with Greek culture making its way throughout the community. And when I say Greek culture, a culture that was not in line with the Word of God. They had no problem with that. And if they compromised with the Romans so that they could get influential positions of power, they were compromisers. And finally, they thought they were different from the Pharisees. They didn't believe in the resurrection, which made them to be great materialists. They got one life. Gather, 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 pull it all together, get as much as you can. Right. So, so Pharisees and Sadducees were completely different people. And what's interesting though here, John the Baptist, he lumps them into one category. These were the vipers. Why? Because they had one thing in Pharisees and Sadducees, like the rest of them, were deeply insecure. And so they tried to attain security through self-effort. The Sadducees attempted to find security through material possessions. The Pharisees attempted to find security through working really hard to get to heaven and being really good people. But they both were committed to self-effort. Even the Pharisees, their, their, their pedigree, they, they used that as a way to work their way to heaven. Uh, verse 9. John says, Then do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. But they were, they were laying out heritage to work their way to heaven. Both Pharisees and Sadducees were doggedly committed to self-effort. But then you say, well, why in the world did they come to be baptized by John? In the century leading up to the birth of Jesus, so first century BC, non-Jews who came to worship 
found themselves coming to worship God would undergo a baptism. They would get bathed, and it was to symbolically represent the washing away of sin. What was startling here is that John is not on the scene calling the non-Jews to come repent and be baptized. He's calling the Jews to come repent and be baptized. He was saying they were filthy too. And that was just so startling to them, especially the Pharisees, who did great pride were out of the shows. That's good to hate. John was saying that the Jews needed radical transformation of mind and heart. So even then, why would they come to be baptized? All for the wrong reasons. Here's possibly why they came to be baptized. Maybe they came to be baptized so they wouldn't lose influence with the multitudes who were running the town. That could be one reason. And the other is they came to be baptized just to show how committed they were. You know, later on, we'll see the Pharisees would stand up in public and, and offer these four eight prayers to show everyone how holy they were. This could have been the exact thing. They're coming to, to build themselves up. Their desire to be baptized was stuck. They weren't sincere. They didn't desire change. And John responded to them in verse 8. He said, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Notice the word fruit here is singular. This is really important. John is not saying Hey, I want you to go and stack up a bunch of good works as evidence of your repentance. It's similar to what Paul talks about in Galatians, Galatians 5, 22, when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Not the fruits of the Spirit, but singular, the fruit of the Spirit. And then he says in Galatians 5.19, the works of the flesh. Not the work, but the works of the flesh. The point here is the evidence of true repentance is fruit that can only be produced by the Spirit, not self-evident. In other words, the fruit that the Spirit produces is supernatural. It cannot be produced by self-effort. Let me say it this way. I'll return to this maybe another time. You can't have repentance without good works. But you can have good works outwardly and not be repentant. Matthew is making this abundantly clear. When he quotes what John says, look at verse 9. John says, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So they've already said, look, we're, we're physical descendants of Abraham. We're good. And John says, no. God can raise up children from these stones, speaking of non-Jews, Gentiles. It's supernatural. In the same way that God supernaturally created Adam from the dust, He's saying God supernaturally creates believing children for the sinners. That repentance, and certainly the repentance from the salvation, is absolutely supernatural. John emphasizes it again in verse 11. He says, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire represents two things here. One, it represents purification. The picture of 
uh, a metal being heated up to extreme temperatures so that the dross can be burned off in what's left, left is pure metal. That's the image of fire purifying. But the other thing it represents here, fire, not just purification, but indwelling. We see this in Acts chapter 2. When the flames of fire come to rest on the disciples, that's indwelling. And both of these, purification and indwelling, come together in Ezekiel chapter 36. Where the prophet Ezekiel talks about being cleansed. And he concludes his discussion on being cleansed with verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you, indwelling, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Only the Holy Spirit can produce fruit. Good fruit. God honors fruit, only the Spirit can produce the fruit of the Spirit at both the behavioral and motivational level. So, back to the question, how do I know if I'm repentant? Well, you can determine if you're really repentant by the fruit that is produced. fruit that would show that I'm not repentant. Well, look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. It's the whole list of the works of the flesh, but let me pull out just a couple here. The works of the flesh are fits of anger, strife, ascensions, division. Have you ever had this experience? You get in a fight or an argument with your spouse late at night. You don't have to nod, but yes. I'll answer it for you. But you get in an argument. And then you seemingly own what you've done wrong and ask forgiveness. return the favor. Your spouse doesn't repent of the way that you think your spouse was wrong. And so you go to bed with this anger and this bitterness and the Grand Canyon chasm between you. There's no unity. There's still dissension. There's division. There's anger inside. That, that, that is fruit that is evidence that your repentance wasn't real, that your repentance was actually selfish, that your repentance was actually self-effort to manipulate a response. And when that response didn't come, you got angry. And there was still division. Or, the selfishness of your repentance could be, I just want to get my spouse off my back to go to bed. So I'm going to offer up, will you forgive me? No, I'm really not going to, I really don't understand how I hurt the person that I love so much, but I just want to go to bed. What are the signs of true or real repentance? We have to look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. Joy, patience, patience that doesn't push, patience that says, you know what, I, I really, I was hurt, and I believe my spouse did something that was wrong, but it's in the spirit thing. I know what I did, I repent, but now real repentance produces patience. Kindness. Gentleness. You know that when you're angry, you're not 
gentle. But anger produces harshness, irritability, impatience. So repentance is realigning your heart with the right authority, Jesus, and the right design. And the evidence of repentance is fruit that only the Spirit can produce. It can't be produced by self-effort. Finally, this is where we land, and this is really important. What's the goal of repentance? What actually is the goal of repentance? Well, in verse 13, Jesus comes to be baptized by John. And John's response is, it makes sense. John says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Things are flipped around here, Jesus. You should be one, the one baptizing me, not me and you. And Jesus responds in verse 15 to John. Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us, meaning John and Jesus, to fulfill all righteousness. Now what does Jesus mean to fulfill all righteousness? After all, the Jews were coming, confessing their sin, and being baptized by John. Well, wasn't Jesus sinless? So clearly, he couldn't be coming to confess his sin and be baptized. What's going on here? The key word here is fulfill. And this is a word that Matthew has been using in his first, the first couple chapters of his gospel. When Matthew uses the word fulfill, he's talking about the fulfillment of prophecy. And this is no different. Fulfill all righteousness is this is the, the prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, 11. The righteous one, my servant, speaking of Jesus the Messiah, will make many to be accounted righteous. So the righteous servant, Jesus, will come and make many to be accounted righteous. What's interesting here is that Jesus is not up on the podium, so to speak, with John, calling sinners into repentance. Jesus is actually down with the sinners, affirming his solidarity with them, getting baptized alongside of them, because he has come to make the many sinners righteous. Now, the other key word here is righteous. What does that mean? Matthew uses it in a little bit of a different way than Paul does in all his letters. Matthew uses the word righteous in, in more of an Old Testament sense. Where in the Old Testament, righteousness speaks more of a, a heart-deep, heartfelt obedience to God. Jesus comes to be baptized because he is submitting to his Father's will. He's submitting to baptism to express his obedience as a son, as the Son of God, in his desire to perfectly fulfill his Father's will. And so Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness as a perfectly obedient son. And he did that so that he can give you a perfect righteousness upon faith. In other words, Jesus came to be baptized for you. Every part of his life was perfect obedience, including him submitting to baptism, so that he could deliver to you a perfect righteousness. Now, the scene following Jesus' baptism is beautiful. Verse 16. The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. A dove was often a symbol of gentleness. So the Holy Spirit of God coming to descend on Jesus in the form of a dove communicated power in gentleness. What an what a appropriate description, Jesus. Power in gentleness. This 
This is the Spirit descending on Jesus to qualify Him and empower Him for the tremendous task ahead of Him. Verse 17, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. A couple important observations here. Number one, the heavens were open. This was public. This was God opening the heavens for everyone to see his joy and delight over his son. Second observation. All three members of the Trinity are involved in this moment of delight. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in this incredible moment of joy and delight. It's the dynamic drama expressed in Isaiah 42.1, which, by the way, that prophecy was written 750 or so years before Jesus would come. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, speaking of Jesus the Messiah, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. And this moment in Matthew 3 is the fulfillment of that prophecy. This is such a fitting end to John the Baptist stern all broken. I mean, this, John's call to repentance is stern. He says, if you don't bear good fruit, you don't repent, you're going to get cut down like a tree and thrown in the fire. He, he relates the judgment in, in verse 12 to Jesus having a winnowing for and, and, and the wheat and the chaff that would be on the threshing floor, the way they would separate the wheat from the chaff is the winnowing fork would go in and throw it up in the air. And the wheat or the grain was heavier, it would fall to the ground. The chaff would blow away. John's saying that chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. He's speaking of the unrepentant versus the repentant. There is harsh language in this chapter on judgment, God's just and righteous judgment. But what I love is where it lands. It doesn't land in the place of unquenchable fire and harsh judgment. It lands in the place of joy and delight for those that repent and turn to God. Repentance brings you to this place, this moment, the heavens opening, God speaking His joy and delight over His Son. This moment of delight and joy is the place where repentance brings you. It brings you away from self, away from self-justification, self-protection, self-adulation, and it brings you to Jesus. And reminds you that what is true of Jesus is true of you. The pleasure and the delight spoken to Jesus the Son by His Father is the pleasure and the delight that is spoken over you because you're in Christ. This is where repentance brings you. It brings you into the delight of the Trinity. And one of the most joyful, delightful places in the universe is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It is a place of delight. And repentance brings you into that place. Listen to this out of Acts chapter 3. Verses 19 to 20. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance brings you into the refreshing delight of the Trinity. Have you ever been to a wedding reception? And it's one of those wedding receptions where the dance floor is big and people are dancing and have a ball. But you and a few others are standing off the side, sipping your little cup of water, making sure that you're 
standing out of it. But you look on that dance floor and you see people full of delight, full of joy, they're smiling, they're singing, and deep down, if you're really honest with yourself, you think, man, I'd love to be experiencing that. But I, I can't get past my self-consciousness. Now, I'm describing this with detail because I've been there. I'm so self-conscious, my pride won't let me out. I don't want to make a fool of myself. And so I'm just going to stand here and secretly wish I could be in the midst of that joyful moment. And then what happens? Friend, dancing, sees you standing there and says, Come on! Your palms get sweaty, your arms start feeding. And they finally just come grab you and bring you out. And then you start dancing with your two left feet. And you start to experience the joy and the delight of being in this moment. Repentance takes you away from self. The self focus, the self justification, the self protection, the self adulation, the self on and on and on into. But the light of the Trinity that is much bigger than you. Where your eyes are no longer on yourself and in the light of the Trinity, you experience the Father's pleasure over His Son Jesus and His other children. Which is you if you trust in Jesus. And you get to be part of this moment of delight and joy. And because repentance is not a one-time thing, if there is a first time in which you repent and turn to Jesus and receive salvation, where you're brought back in your relationship with the God who made you. The one God who made you. There is one God who has made this world. There's one time repentance. But then, as Martin Luther talks about, the Christian life in a lifestyle of repentance, where repeatedly you get brought, you're in self, focused on self, in those construction projects of identity, and then you repent, turn out of those into the refreshing presence of the delight of the Trinity. I leave you with several questions to ponder. First, is repentance? Central to your relationship with God. Or is moral grandstanding or immoral piety central to your relationship with God? Second question Is repentance central to your relationship with your spouse? Or is defensiveness and self-justification central to your relationship with your spouse? Last question. Is repentance central to your relationship with your children? Or is good behavior on your children's part and on your part it has your kids functionally thinking that mom and dad are perfect or really believe they're perfect. Is repentance, not good behavior, is repentance central to your relationship with your children? As I said, repentance always is accompanied by good work. But the presence of outward good works does not necessarily mean they're repentant. And there is such thing as good behavior and moralism that can get into a family and get into children where you grow up 
not understand the gospel really because there's not a lifestyle of repentance where all of us, mom, dad, kids, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, we're all in repentance turning to Jesus, to the delight of the Trinity, and experience that delight, and that joy. If repentance is not central to your life, you're missing out. You're missing out on the joy and the delight of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. So, Father, even as Matt talked about in our confession, our prayer of confession this morning, there is so much freedom in repentance. We are so shackled to self justification and self preservation and self adulation, and the list goes on. But when you, by your Spirit, draw us to repentance and we are drawn into the, your presence, the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a presence that is full of joy and delight, we find freedom and joy and rest in peace. Oh, Father, would you draw our hearts to repentance? Your word even says that repentance is again. That when we find ourselves genuinely repenting, that that's a sign of the Spirit's work to start Father, there may be relationships in this room where there is need for repentance. It's all part of what we do. Pray that you would bring that out. That there would be reconciliation. An experience of the joy and delight of reconciliation vertically and horizontally. That we would be a community of people that are not perfect, far from perfect, won't be perfect until glory. But that this community would be defined by repentance, humble repentance. Marriages, families, community groups, Bible studies, corporate gatherings like this. And that people would walk into it and see not perfect people, but humble and repentant people that point the world to Jesus. Father, would you? Fill our hearts now by your spirit as we sing to you in worship. We pray this all in Jesus' name.